the Australian Defence Magazine podcast. Serving the business of defence. With Grant McHeron. Hi everyone and welcome back to the show. This episode features another pair of interviews we recorded at the Indo-Pacific 2023 event in Sydney. The first is with Fabian Nechtel, Managing Director of Shebel Pacific, regarding the impacts of the current government's delays to Project C129 Phase 5 Block 1 and also their civilian work with their camcopter system. Fabian, welcome to the show. How's Shebel going today at Indo-Pacific 2023? Yeah, hello Grant. Thanks for uh, talking to us. We had a great day yesterday, expecting even more transit and more visitors today. And we're looking forward to, to another great show. And of course, you've got more than just military presence here. You're talking about civilian uses of the camcopter and so on. Yeah, especially over the last years, we really saw an increase in uh, opportunities in the civil sector. We talk about firefighting, disaster monitoring, flooding. I mean. Everything is changing globally, weather and so on. We're not just seeing this in Europe, but also here in Australia. And we think there's vast opportunities for our product, you know, to support emergency services, civil, private-owned companies, but also the defense forces in civil opportunities. Now, you're, you're here, you've been working with the Navy since 2016, uh, doing a demonstration of capability and so on. And the big news that just recently came out was that, unfortunately, the... Uh, the next phase of the uh, autonomous systems for Navy has been as a pact or just outright cancelled at the moment? Yes, unfortunately you're right and we have been informed by government and the Navy that the C129 Phase 5 Block 1 acquisition won't proceed as planned. So as everybody will know, is uh, our system, the Shebel Campcopter S100, was the designated US platform uh, to be selected. So the last government announced the sole source acquisition actually and we were really prepared to ramp up and you know to deliver capability fast which was the main intent of this sole source acquisition to now just uh, receive that bad news that actually they reconsider what they done. Mainly we've been informed this is an outcut of the wide defense strategic review and the follow-on uh, fleet surface competence review that reportedly has now been delivered back to government and navy which they are reviewing now again. And the constant message we get and we hear from uh, our customers, friends and, and partners in Navy is, at the moment, we don't know. <laughs> that does make it very hard to plan and to resource. I imagine this is having quite the ramifications on your workforce and the workforce of the Australian industry groups you're working with. You're spot on, Grant. I mean, this is the biggest impact for us. It's not just the uncertainty of uh, our future and you know the mid and long term strategy for our business here, especially Shebel Pacific, our global uh, uh, is a global group with multiple entities around the cross and Shebel Pacific, our Australian entity, where we plan to really you know contribute to the sovereign industry. And we started in 2018 with really that one main goal of winning C129, and we were quite close. And now we have an uncertain future, and obviously our Australian employees have a bit of a uncertainty, what does the future hold for us? Yeah, exactly. So you've got that sword hanging over your head, so to speak. And you I mean, it's not just Shebel from Austria, it's you're working with a lot of Australian uh, organizations and there was a lot of uh, prospects for utilizing Australian componentry 
in the various modules that the camcopter can support. So how, how are they taking it? Yeah, I guess the whole industry and, and I mean that the, the impact and the outcome of the DSI is not just affecting our program but the whole industry and in detail for us, you are absolutely right, is I mean we really prepared and we had massive amount of uh, conversations and talks with uh, Australian suppliers to really be prepared is to produce and assemble uh, the vast majority of our products here in Australia because Australian industry content still is very important uh, and we really, and our commitment stands, we really have a high number of great uh, quality partners that are, Australia has great production capabilities, so we, we talk about producing certain components from metal to composites to electronics, but also the whole uh, service and support area is here, you know, and this is all on ice now, but it goes even further, I mean, for example, facilities, uh, job, the hiring, you know, we, we really we plan to ramp up initially at the early phases, create 50 to 100 jobs, you know, and all this is now on ice. In best case, in worst case, it's probably lost. Having said that, the glass is half full, you know, <laughs> we, are, we are under contract with Navy, that is unchanged, our commitment to support Navy and the Australian Defence Force is here, you know, it's absolutely a pleasure to work with them every day. Almost every day, they're, they're flying our systems, they're doing great stuff, participate in exercises, Talisman Saber, had a number of deployments with the LHDs. You know, they are here at the show, so Australian Navy displays one of their live aircraft there to the use, to their future REN members, because the workforce for REN is also as difficult to get as it is for us. <laughs> so, once again, huge setback, but last half full, we're looking forward, and we're in discussion with Navy about a potential follow-on contract. Especially as, once again, they say they don't really know is what their mid and long term strategy for the maritime UAS is at the moment. And we are the platform of choice of Royal Australian Navy at the moment. And we intend to remain. Yeah, and I've got a number of friends in Navy who really enjoy operating the camcopter. They say it's very effective, uh, efficient, works very well, uh, does the job. So I would imagine that because it's already in use with Navy, if they're pushing phase five, back, then I would imagine your capability will be bridged until they know what they are doing. Do you, do you think that's likely? I think it's very likely, as I said, is I mean, Royal Australian Navy and uh, the Commonwealth have invested in this capability for the last six, seven years. And really just recently, because it was a long journey, we see that they really now got to be or became an experienced user of an advanced VTOR system. You know, whilst initially they applied a certain view and standards and expectations from uh, main deviation, crew deviation, they're now starting to take a bit more risk, be more flexible and understand this it's an uncrewed system. You know, I, I can really test and evaluate a lot faster and more flexible because, you know, safety aspect is a different one. Mm -hmm. So they really started to do a lot of experimentation lately. Uh, the, the, one of our, for example, sovereign integration projects we did is we integrated the, the Regal LiDAR, uh, which is a great thing, it's a bathymetric LiDAR to really prepare landing operations, but also, for example, look for drifting sea mines. And there's a great success with European navies, and I think this is very interesting for Australian navies at the moment, you know. And they are very interested in ASW, so dropping sonar boys we just added to our capabilities and these things, but also we are preparing to hopefully very soon demonstrate uh, cargo delivery, sling load operations, 
because our platform is really a multi-road, multi-payload system. And maybe from the initial only clear ISR perspective using EOIR, you know, now starts to really tell us, actually, we think we can do much more. So we know we can do much more. So why, why don't we do it? Yeah. So we hope to use that time where they reconsider what in the mid and long term they are looking for to make use of the platform they have in service now and they really are probably one of our most advanced customers and a great partner to work with. Fantastic. And it's good to see that you're able to keep everything going despite the, the setback on, on phase five. Are you getting much interest from other navies in the area? Have you had many come by during the show and before? Yeah, we had a couple of uh, naval visitors already, but we are under a contract with Royal uh, Thai Navy now at the moment. And this is a very successful project, so they are expanding their fleet. Uh, we are working with Indonesia, Singapore, uh, for example, South Korea is a, uh, a naval partner that really also expands. They are very interested, for example, also in our future bigger brother, as we call it, the, the S300 platform, which will uh, hopefully be released over the next one to two years. And yeah, m most definitely. And also here for, for us, Pacific, Shebra Pacific, this is probably part of our plan, strategy, philosophy is there's Shebra Pacific for a reason, it's not Shebra Australia. So the long-term strategy for our global organization is that Shebra Pacific will become the hub for the whole Pacific region. And of course, we mentioned civilian before, and you touched on firefighting. These uh, autonomous systems can fly at night when manned systems often are not available uh, because they don't have the night vision goggles or things like that. So how's the um, civilian side going for Sheeple Pacific? Yeah, we have uh, a number of opportunities actually in Australia. So we're working with a partner in Western Australia that is really uh, far progressed already in the process with achieving a CASA flight permit that will open up civil airspace for our platform. It's unprecedented in Australia because I think we would be the very first above 150 kg V12 platform operating in Australia. And also we're talking to a company down in Victoria that, as you said, is here, for example, they operate a fleet of manned helicopters and have already existing a certain number of EOIR payloads that fit exactly on our platform. And there is an absolute business case and a good concept of operations behind it that during the day, the big choppers, the manned helicopters fly and then they simply switch the payload to our US system that can go all night, you know. And that is the beauty of a US system. You just put it in the air and have it hovering for six hours. You know, there's no risk of a pilot falling asleep. <laughs> yeah, the, the autonomous and unmanned systems can go well beyond the comfort of the crew. Absolutely. <laughs> well, Fabian, thank you very much for your time. I've appreciated you coming on to have a chat about the Phase 5 setback, but also the, uh, the wonderful opportunities that you are progressing here in Australia and the Pacific. Absolutely, as we said, this and for us, we remain 100% convinced that the future is bright and positive, and we will see you hopefully at the next Indopec. Our second interview for this episode is with Amanda Holt, CEO of SIPAC, who joins us to talk about the successes they've had with their Corvo Precision Payload Delivery System, aka the Cardboard Drone, and also the impacts that they're seeing in the Australian defence industry due to delays in government decision-making. Amanda Holt of SIPAC, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Well, it's great to have you back on the show. It's been a hot minute since you were last with us and we were talking about, oh, I don't know, flat pack drones and now the whole world seems to know about them. 
It's uh, been a pretty exciting adventure for us, to be completely honest. Uh, from the original concept of the flat pack drone or the PPDS or cardboard drone, as most people are referring to it, you know, we had a few giggles around, that's an unusual concept, but we were quite deliberate in why it had an unusual material base, why it had a very precise cost point to really allow we could deliver a system that would let the innovators in the battlefield work with it, not just the engineers be innovative when we came up with this design. And as we've seen, people have been very innovative with these and delivering all sorts of things, not just pizzas. Oh, look, it's been fantastic to see the way that this sort of technology can enable people to do a whole range of missions out in theatre. I think one of the things that we've been really proud of with our technology is to be able to give that creativity over to the end operator rather than constraining them in operations. Yeah, once, once you let the people have the tools and the flexibility, great things happen, don't they? Oh, absolutely. And I think if we use the use case that we've been seeing in Ukraine more recently, they're an incredibly sophisticated autonomous systems operating group. You know, they, they're talking about a strong industrial capability to begin with and certainly from an operational perspective. So, yeah, the creativity that we're seeing coming out of there has been uh, surprising is too strong a word, but it's, but it's been a bit inspiring, to be completely honest. I'd go with inspiring. I mean, yeah, they do have a solid usage of autonomous and remotely piloted vehicles. So, yeah, give them this machine and um, watch them go woohoo. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's one of the things that we always try and do when we're developing defence capability is we understand the threat environment's changing all the time and the operational need also adjusts in response to that. So if we can make sure we're not constraining that end operator, if we're delivering them something that's resilient, that's adaptable, hopefully we're meeting their needs. And I'm guessing that this is, uh, shall we say, boosted CYPAC's awareness amongst uh, defence forces and other civilian operators around the world? That's certainly one way to say it. Look, we're a conservative engineering business, let's be honest. We're a bunch of nerds who like to build cool stuff. So it's been fantastic for our family and friends to see us on the front page of the AFR and to sort of see some of the media comms. But it's been a bit confronting for us, if I'm completely honest. But what's really helped is now that we've proven the point that we can export autonomous systems into, um, you know, essentially a war zone to enable good military effect, and the support we've had through Team Defence Australia has enabled us to go and engage quite meaningfully, particularly in the AUKUS forums. So we had teams over at DSEI as part of TDA, we've had teams at AUSA as part of TDA, and certainly the profile is much larger than certainly I ever expected. To the point that some of these international trade shows, we've got people coming up to us just wanting to touch the cardboard plane. Now, this is not normal engineering defence you know, industry behaviour, but it really has captured people's imagination. Uh, so I imagine that you've got a lot of really smart people doing a lot of really amazing stuff. So I would imagine that the introversion would be kind of high in the office. So you said it's been kind of confronting at times. Have you been able to put layers in to protect the team so that they can get on without the uh, rock star distractions? Yeah. <laughs> Look, I'm going to be completely honest, we had a few of our engineers get, get very excited. Um, but in reality, the work that we do, it keeps changing. So I think the main thing that it's done for the team is it's reinforced that the work we did and some of the giggles we copped when we first turned up at Army Innovation Day with a cardboard drone, it's reinforced that what we're doing matters and it does work. And there's something nice as well. When you work in defence industry for most of your career, you can't really share a lot of what you do with your family and friends. Everyone at SIPAC now is incredibly proud of what we've done and all of their family and friends know what we are. I'm still a little mortified that I think my brandy is now the cardboard drone girl, 
but I'll take it. <laughs> yeah, uh, I believe it's uh, yeah the folks at uh, Ryanair. Yeah, uh, any news is good news. <laughs> yeah, again, I'm an engineer, so I wouldn't agree with that. But at the same time, yeah, the, the confidence given the team that what we're doing is making a difference is fantastic. Fantastic. That's definitely a, a big thing to know that you're having a positive outcome, and uh, depending on where you're sitting, but uh, the. The key thing, though, is also, are, are you finding uh, outside of defence that you're getting much traction? Because I imagine these would be great for sending supplies into places that have been cut off. Yeah, so what that humanitarian assistance disaster response uh, use case is something that was originally designed for. You can imagine after you know, some form of natural disaster, flying a range of these off the deck of an LHD to get emergency medicine, get some communications equipment, you know, send radios down onto some, um, you know, affected villages, for instance, where all the 5G towers and things like that have been wiped out. It's a really safe way of establishing that first response before we can get helicopters with larger cargo and everything else mobilised on the ground. So I think there's a really exciting opportunity in that HADR response for this type of tech. And the other thing we're having a lot of good conversations around is its application for uplifting UAS capability in the region. Very low cost way of getting some quite simple ISR capability in there. So think about fisheries monitoring, um, condition, you know, climate change impacts, those sorts of things. And at the end of the day, if you lose one of these, it's not like losing a half a million dollar aircraft. So there's, there's an uplift in capability that we're quite excited to see and how that might be explored in the region. Fantastic. So obviously this is uh, keeping you folks pretty busy, even despite the, the general slowdown that many are talking about because, you know, we've got uh, the DSR has put things on hold, the whole change of how we're doing innovation in defence. Well, instead of keeping the old way going until we get the new way going, they've just stopped the old way and it's going to take 18 months to bring in the new way. Yeah, OK, wait. Uh, and also the whole fleet, surface fleet review, and let's just push that back even further. So you folks have obviously, you're able to keep going because of all the other work you're doing as well, yes? I think we've been very fortunate that we're a larger size defence business. You know, we're around 200 people. We are reasonably diversified. So we do have programs that, you know, we, we were under contract before COVID and luckily they've seen us through that COVID period. They've seen us through the uncertainty of the last 15 months since the DSR was first announced. And there are other programs that we've obviously secured in that time that continue to set us up. Growing a business, maintaining a business in this current environment is absolutely challenging and we are seeing a number of particularly the smaller businesses under a degree of distress right now. I'm optimistic though that some of the really smaller bodies of work and certainly some of the collaborative work that we're finding we can do into the defence sector, if all of the SMEs in Australia can just find enough of those to keep finding our way through, the DSR has given us a really clear message. We need increased industrial capacity, we need secure workforce, we need secure infrastructure and we need IP that we can leverage rapidly into capability, that whole minimum viable, viable capability approach, which cardboard drone is probably a really good example of, let's be honest. So I'm optimistic that people who've been in defence industry, despite the challenges of the last few years, can see a pathway through because when government make the announcements off the back of next year's budget and all of the reviews that have been consult consolidated and considered right now, there's going to be more work than all of us can bear and we don't want to take a step backwards now because it's only going to make it slower for us to actually meet the needs going forward. The other side though is like the government's going to say, right, go, 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 minimum viable product, there we go, and defence bureaucracy is going to go, is, do you see that happening or do you think that uh, CASG 2.0 and things like that are really going to be ready to go by then? 
look, I'm always going to be the optimist. That's just how I'm, I'm built. When I look at the senior leadership, both in the service headquarters and within CASG and the commitment I'm seeing there to CASG 2.0, there is an understanding of where there has been waste and delay in the system that hasn't actually enabled our warfighter. So I believe there's some really mature discussions taking place and they're taking place with those of us in industry so that we can all come up with a better way of getting there faster, being very much more risk aware than we've been in the past. Is it going to, you know, cultural change like that, is it going to happen quickly? Absolutely not. But you just need the leadership to show that it's possible. And what I'm looking forward to is seeing some of those first, either new programs, whether it's new innovation activities under ASCA or direct procurement out of CASG, if they can find a few of those capabilities that are a bit different, where the risk profile isn't the, you know, the cookie-cutter version of previous procurement, and we can test it out. We can test it out with some trusted industry members so we can learn what can we do differently, where did we go too far on the risk acceptance side, where did we not go far enough, and are we actually introducing capability that's meaningful? That's where we need to get to. And a big part of the discussions here at the um, Indopac conference this week have been around that idea of, well, what is minimum viable capability? And I think in reality, it's going to always be contextual. So we're not going to be able, what I hope we don't do is go and spend a whole lot of time and effort coming up with a perfect governance document for one form of MVC. What I hope we're going to do is test it out, learn a little bit from it, and the bit that gives me the most uh, encouragement, I guess, is the discussion around evergreening them. MVC isn't just accepting something at a lower level than we normally would. It's understanding how do I get it sooner? How do I learn how to use it to better effect? Because often that delay to get those last 10% of requirements signed off, we're not necessarily understanding how we're really going to use that capability. So let's get it sooner, learn from it, iterate it and improve it. And in some instances, the minimum viable capability does more than we thought it was going to and there's no need to continue to invest in it. In others, we're entering rapidly changing threat environment, rapidly changing technological environment. So what we need to do is be ready to respond to that in whatever form it takes. Yes, I was about to say, oh, it sounds like an iterative environment and you named it. So uh, that, that concept of rapid iteration, of getting something out there, letting people feel their way through it, seeing what, they, what works, what doesn't, shoring up what doesn't, adding what to what does, how does that work, though, with some of the rigid engineering processes, safety assurance and all that? We don't want to wind up with the uh, folks who imploded their sub because they bypassed a lot of safety, but we don't want to be bogged down in it. How do you walk that line? Again, I think it comes back to really understanding your risk profile. We work with experimental aircraft all the time. The first time you flight test something, it is a risky endeavour. But we make sure through our CASA programs or if we're working with defence through the DASA programs, we're planning and identifying those risks. We understand what we can and can't control and we exercise at a level that you're incrementally learning from and reducing that risk. There's no reason why we can't take that approach towards capability acquisition. And where I think we'll actually get the bigger savings is not by diluting the engineering process, but making it fit for purpose. And the way we make our engineering process fit for purpose is making our commercial process fit for purpose. So what I really, really want to see is minimum viable commercial agreement. When we get that right, we can then focus on the technical risk, whether it's safety, whether it's performance, whether it's environmental, because then we're fully addressing that rather than an older style of waterfall approach, because if we go through all the gates, we feel we've been safe. 
it's fit for purpose for some capabilities, it's not fit for purpose for the sort of emerging tech and disruptive tech that I spend my time working on. Well, Waterfall is great for stuff you've done before, stuff you've done again, and where you know the world and the world hasn't changed under you. That's Waterfall, through and through. But yes, in this world where it's all new and everything, I like the idea of minimum viable commercial engineering product. Step through the three, that's great. Now, look, thanks so much. And I think that's our lessons that we've taken from being a prototype-led organisation. We learn by doing. We love working in the defence sector because your defence operators, they learn by doing. So let's take what's at our core, what we're actually really good at, and put that into the way we manage acquisition programs. And just put a few constraints around it to protect so that we're not shoving the general public and charging the money for something that hasn't really been fully checked out. To once again come back to that, oops, there goes my sub-routine. Oh, look, and I think, unfortunately, there is always a risk of things failing, but usually they fail because you haven't scoped it appropriately from the start. So if we put that right time into engaging with the real experts on what the real risk is, what the real scope of work is that needs to be done, and coming up with that iterative approach towards how do I validate that, how do I reduce some risk, how do I accept some risk, I think we should have the maturity both within the Commonwealth, within the services and with industry to be a bit more open and honest about where that risk sits so that we can target it and resolve it. Amanda Holt, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for your time in a very busy environment. I appreciate it. Uh, always good fun. Thank you so much. Thanks to everyone for listening once again. And don't forget, if you enjoyed this episode, you can follow this podcast in your favourite podcatcher to ensure you get every episode as they are released. Meanwhile, thanks for tuning in and we'll be back in the not too distant future with another informative episode. The ADM podcast is produced by Southern Skies Media on behalf of Australian Defence Magazine, a Yaffa media title. The views of the people appearing on this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Australian Defence Magazine, the Department of Defence or the guest's employer. If you wish to use any of the audio in this podcast, please contact Australian Defence Magazine via their website, australiandefence.com.au or via email at defmag at yaffa.com.au. You've been listening to a Yaffa Media Podcast. Southern Skies Media.